Welcome to the South Plains Church of Christ podcast. To stay up to date on what's going on and how you can be involved, visit southplains.info. I pray that this message reveals God's truth and love to you today. Let's dive in. Well, it was in the, in the late 1700s that a young man made a plea for what we would call cross-cultural missions at a meeting that was held in, in Leicester, England, not just actually south of where our own uh, Bob Ekman lives and ministers now. And this young man was speaking, uh, as he was speaking, he was abruptly interrupted by a cantankerous group of people. One of them called him out saying, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. Well, that moment stuck with the young William Carey, who at that point was an obscure shoe repair maker, and he continued to study the Scripture, which led him to the conclusion that the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, applies to all Christians in all times. And Carey would ultimately ignite a missionary movement, and at the first meeting, he is quoted as saying this, great, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Kerry would go to India in, 18, in 1790, the late 1790s, and lose everything, including a child. In a letter he reported back, yet I rejoice that I am here. And God is here. It was the prophet Amos who said these words. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure. He's talking about trusting in your leisure and in your wealth and in your status. This is the time of year when daylight's getting shorter and shorter and we wonder, well, what happened? Halloween's coming next Sunday. And we may fear the influence of horror movies or Ouija boards. But in reality, it is the dullness of apathy and complacency that are the true satanic influences in our world. You see, Kerry plotted for seven years before baptizing his first convert. But he expected God to do great things. He spent 41 years in India before he died, translated the Bible into the, all the Indian major languages, founded a college and a school that still exists. More than that, he inspired many missionaries. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Well, we're in the book of Haggai. We have been all month long. And the people in the book of Haggai failed to expect great things from God. In some ways, it's, it's understandable. King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had come in and, and destroyed Jerusalem 
conquered and sacked the, uh, the, the country of Judah. And the people now who are back could see that the temple that they were rebuilding really was nothing compared to the great Solomon temple. It would be lesser than. All that was in front of them were ruin and rubble. And we've all had these letdowns. We've all had uh, these great expectations that were shattered and destroyed. These moments when people didn't live up to what we expected from them. In fact, we'd have to be honest and say we haven't even lived up to our own expectations. But if we base greatness on our expectations, we will always be let down. But there is another standard of greatness, another measure of greatness, and we find this as we conclude this book of Haggai. As I said, we've been walking through the book for the past month, and in it Haggai gave the people, his people, four different messages to encourage them to keep working while God was building. The first message was about building God's house. That was chapter 1. The second message in chapter 2 was to complete God's house. And halfway through chapter 2 was the third message where he called the people to obedience to God and that God's blessing was upon them. And now at the very end of the book is the fourth message. And it is directed just to Zerubbabel, the leader, the governor of this tiny outpost of Jews on the far reaches of the Persian Empire. And here God delivers big news you need to expect great things. I pick up the story in verse 20, chapter 2 of Haggai. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. That's December 18th. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. This, the political and ruling powers of the day are going to be overturned. And notice what will be done, that it will be done by God, not by Zerubbabel or anybody else. I want you to recall with me the story in Luke chapter 22 where Luke records that the disciples of Jesus were arguing over who should be considered the greatest in his kingdom. This is in the context where just before they were arguing about who was going to betray Jesus. So they go from who's going to betray Jesus to who's going to be the greatest. They'd argued this before, it wasn't the first time, back in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus afterwards picks up a child and says, welcome, when you welcome a child, you welcome me. He tells them that if they want to be great, to serve a child, to serve the least. You see, in that day, children were viewed as 
basically worthless. If you weren't, until they got to be seven years old or more, they were worthless. So Jesus tells them the greatest is the least, and the least are the greatest. So how petty is it that we would ever want to make a name for ourselves when God Almighty, our Creator, has made a plan for us? Again, in Luke 22, Jesus doesn't really rebuke the disciples' desire for greatness, but he redirects the desire for greatness. The desire for greatness is a good thing. It's a God in, in uh, thing that he put in us, a desire, when it comes from the right source and when it's directed in the right way. Greatness originates with God. Now, in this fourth passage, uh, fourth message, Haggai makes it clear that these messages came from God. He said in verse 20, the word of the Lord came. He wants to be very sure you understand this comes from God. Greatness originates with God. There is no doubt that God has a plan for you. Each person has his or her own divine initiative we might say. But the question is, are you part of God's plan? Or are you focused on your own plans? The wisdom writer in Proverbs 19.21 said, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Greatness is minimized when you try to plan your own way. Greatness is maximized when you rely on God's plan. So true greatness always originates with God, and greatness is also achieved because of God. In verse 21, he begins saying, tell Zerubbabel, which might make you think, why are we even studying this since this was a message to Zerubbabel? I'll tell you why. Just that reason. It's given to the leader. It's given to the governor at that time. And God tells him it is now up, he's speaking to him because, you see, up to this time, he'd speaking to the people collectively. And God does that. I mean, he often collectively speaks to the church, right? And the Spirit of God moves in his church, and we move together corporately. But God also speaks to individuals. God cares corporately for the whole, for the whole church, for, the, for your whole family. But God also cares for you individually, personally. And this is a personal message to Zerubbabel. In that message, God says, listen, I will overturn. Overturn the, the thrones of rulers, the, destroy the powers. I will destroy the rulers. God tells him again and again by the personal pronoun I that he's in charge. That's what God's telling Zerubbabel. You're the leader, but don't forget, I'm in charge. So God takes credit himself for taking these actions. Now, this is the same reference we saw in chapter 2 of Haggai, verse 9, God is going to where he said God is going to shake the Persian uh, kingdom and the Greek kingdoms and, and, and the Roman empire, all of these nations. And we know from history God did that. God fulfilled his prophecy. There's also a reference to more distant events here. 
What applied in verse 6 of chapter 2 applies here. Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, the whole universe will feel it. Now, none of these people in Haggai would see the temple completed. Had you realized that? It wasn't done until the year 515 B.C. Ultimately, it's going to be destroyed again in 70 A.D. But what about Zerubbabel, Jim? What happens to him? He was a VIP, a very important person at them. So what happened to Zerubbabel? Well, let me tell you. We don't know. We have no idea what happened to it. So what's the point? Well, the point is you may never see your legacy come to fruition. And God may design it that way. You may never see your legacy come to fruition. When do, when, why then does he focus on Zerubbabel at the end of the book? Well, what was accomplished through Zerubbabel? Ultimately, Zerubbabel points to Jesus Christ. As Zerubbabel built a physical temple, Jesus would build a temple of living stones. And so at the end of Haggai, here's what we're reminded that greatness culminates in Jesus Christ. I have chosen you, God said. That's God speaking through Haggai to Zerubbabel personally. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 3 and verse 27, Zerubbabel is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. You have to go over there and read all those begats, begats, begats to be able to figure that out. The temple that Zerubbabel built would fall in the line of all the temples that would that usher in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The walls there would not be adorned by jewels and gold, as Solomon's temple was. But both Zerubbabel and the temple become an important part of Christ's coming into the world. The advent, it's called, that we, we tend to focus on around Christmas. This is what God meant by the temple's glory. Not that it would be bigger than Solomon's temple, not that it would be more ornamental than Solomon's temple, but that it would be grander in God's eyes because of what it would usher in. The house God is building here in Haggai was more than bricks and mortar. And for us today, it's more... This is more than brick and mortar or, or steel and rivets, whatever, whatever it is. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we learn that we too are a chosen people and that we are living stones. That's us, the church. You yourself are living stones, spiritual stones. You are Living stones that God is building into his temple, his spiritual temple. We are the ones who make up God's house. Then in Haggai chapter 2, verse 23, he says, on that day. Now notice what he said, that, that day, not this day. There's a difference. On that day, Zerubbabel gets a promise, but it's not on that day. This is looking forward. 
It's about the future. And grand expectations always have an end point with Jesus. The last picture that Haggai gives us is that of a signet ring. A signet ring. Which was, in essence, oh, stone carved with a, with a specific symbol or emblem that signified a person of power. Maybe a king. And it was, it was used to press into clay tablets in order to authenticate them. It was a very important object to a ruler. Therefore, he always guarded it by wearing it on his ring finger or by wearing it around his neck. He protected it. God was telling Zerubbabel that he was going to place him under his care, God's care. That God was going to guard his life like a signet ring. God himself would bring Zerubbabel into the lineage of the Messiah. Now think about Zerubbabel for just a moment. This was not exactly a safe place to be a leader. I don't know, you know, it's right right now. Do you want to go to the Middle East? I, I don't know that I do. It's not exactly the safest of place. It was, it was less safe then than now. The people there were discouraged easily. The city was in ruins. Anybody could invade at any time. Zerubbabel's life as a leader was always on the line. It was not the greatest of times to be in leadership. So this, this ring is symbolic of the special relationship that Zerubbabel had with God. The ring represented ownership, represented authority. It was an identifying mark. Of validation. God is telling Zerubbabel that he has been validated for service to God. Here's the truth. We don't know when God's plan will be completed in our life. We just have no idea. Haggai and Zerubbabel probably thought God's plan for their life was going to come sooner rather than then later, at least during their, later, uh, their lifetimes, but it didn't. God's fulfillment didn't come until they were both long gone. And then the book ends this way. It ends with this phrase. We've heard it many times as we've walked through the book. In fact, 14 times. Declares the Lord Almighty. What does Lord or Yahweh Almighty mean? It's a reminder of who's really in charge. Greatness is never about us. Our expectation is the greatness of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, Messiah, the Holy One that we've been singing about all morning long. Thanks for listening. Again, I want to encourage you to visit southplains.info. There you'll find event calendars, important announcements, ways to give, and to request prayer. Thank you for joining us.